Greetings, listener, and welcome to a slightly different Strangers to the Multiplex. Messrs. Stuart and Wood and myself, your guest host, complimentary copies, are donning our Hoffman lenses to examine the work of John Howard Carpenter. Carpenter is an American auteur, screenwriter, producer and musician. His credits include Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, The Fog, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, Halloween, Escapes from New York and L.A., Ghosts of Mars, In the Mouth of Madness, countless soundtracks, two albums of lost themes with his son Cody Carpenter and his godson Daniel Davis. Today, Strangers to the Multiplex talk about the films of John Carpenter. The first film we'll be tackling today is Assault on Precinct 13, 1976, directed by Carpenter, produced by J.S. Kaplan, written by John Carpenter, edited by Carpenter, and music by Carpenter. The film is based on the 1959 Howard Hawks film, Rio Bravo. He's obsessed with his westerns, isn't he? He is, yeah, he's never actually made a western. Well, you will get on to that. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say. Yeah. I, I didn't know it was based on a Western until you, uh, you told me, Neil. I uh, honestly had no idea, but a lot of it makes a lot more sense. What do we think to this one? Uh, it's, a, it's actually one of my favourite Carpenter films, Al- although there is very little uh, logic to a lot of the plot. Um, it does show some, kind of his, some of his early stylistic traits, uh, an element of humour. Um, there's a lot around... Very similar to Night of the Living Dead, where you've got a, a lead black character where the illusion, the reference to him being black's never made, apart from he makes the reference himself. He does, with yeah. that fantastic line with the secretary, where she's making him the coffee and she says to him, black, and he goes, guys, huh, for over 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarity. <laughs> there, there's a very strong female lead in it as well. You think? Yeah, the... the she takes she takes a bullet in the arm and still carries on shooting. Yeah, but she's just... and then becomes one of the basically one of the defending posse. She does. She makes it to the end of the movie. I'll give you that. But she's. I wouldn't say she drove the plot at all. I wouldn't say that she was there and she had anything she particularly wanted other than to live. Whereas, were she Bishop, at least she, she would have had more of a story. I think she was a bit of a sideline. Oh, oh. I, I, whereas I actually thought everyone was there. The, the only motivation they had actually was for living. You know, we ignored the whole, uh, the mass murderer. I can't remember his name. Yeah. Um, uh, was it Napoleon Wilson? Napoleon Wilson. That was it. That's that's the one. <laughs> Isn't it? Um, but but we all, all it boiled down to was the fact that everybody wanted to live and they, they teamed together. To fight off this I gang. This, and not just with this particular movie, but all of the movies, I would say that Carpenter is a better director in sense of um, tone and tension than he is a kind of an actor's director. I'd have said, especially this one, which I believe he wrote himself, even though it was based on another movie. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did, I don't yeah. think he gets character particularly well. 
Um, I you could argue that with a lot of his films. Though. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Him as a director in general, I think it's more about the aesthetic and more about the mood and the, the tone and the tension than he is the actual characters. Because that's why a film like Halloween works so well. Because it is just atmosphere and there's no, it doesn't need to be character driven. No, no Back to not at all. <laughs> there is, I think, like you said, though, there are some of his, um, his trademark his trademark approaches, especially when the gang are outside the police station in the car park. Uh, the people in the police station peering out the windows at them. It's very sort of Mike Myers-esque. They come, they're coming towards. The windows! Okay, it's, it's almost like a, a preternatural force all the time. All, all of his siege movies and a lot of his other stuff is all about uh, man against something that they can't actually control or actually explain. And quite interestingly, when we were talking about the gang's motivations for storming the police station, we really struggled with what their motivations were. And I think part of that is because Carpenter doesn't want to be laden with backstory. He, he wants more around the emotion than he does than he does round the kind of the rounded character and rounded story. There is a there is a um a conversation between two policemen at one point in the back of the, in the squad car where they're talking about how crazy the city is going, and they put it down to sunspots or pressure on the atmosphere, which I like because <laughs> at, le- at least there was some kind of explanation as to why these gang these gangs were killing each other, and it was a bit a bit supernatural, which I think when you go onto stuff like Halloween and certain like um, Ghosts of Mars, well, even the fog. Even the fog, there's there's a um, supernatural, or like they live again. A, a group though, the, the fog, a group storming a group of people stuck in a in a singular location. Was this was this one of Carpenter's first movies? Uh, first movie was Dark Star, which was his uh, University of California student film that they then expanded, uh, and that and that led him to get the funding to do. Uh, Assault and Precinct uh, so, so, 13. The reason I ask is, aesthetically, uh, Precinct 13 is more like a student movie. Um, I couldn't I couldn't quite decide whether that was just because it was a bit dated as it was made in the 70s or because he didn't have much funding for it. It was quite a low budget. Any thoughts? Uh, it was definitely, definitely low budget. I, I can't remember the figures. Uh, I think it was $100,000 that that was all made for. Because of the, the the fact that he didn't demand a high budget for it, he actually got a final cut as well. It's more important. Which is, yeah. 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 I think that's something that's carried on throughout most of his films. I think when he has been given a budget, he's, he's rarely used it. <laughs> like I think when he's, yeah, oh God. <laughs> I think when he has to think on his feet, I think that brings out the best in him. Yeah, I agree. I think we'll plan, but I, I remember, Neil, me and you were talking about this, about the scene where the gang are sitting around the table cutting themselves. Now, I thought yeah. it was something to do with unity uh, between them and their fallen brothers who were gunned down by the police. You, you reckon it harks back to the Western? It does, yeah. It harks back to uh, Native American, and I'm desperately trying to find <laughs> the, the word. I believe it's called a cholo. Yeah. <laughs> a churro. They, they had a, a churro packed where they dipped in hot chocolate. Um <laughs> Uh, gosh, I cannot find. It. I am sure it. I am sure it's, it's, it's some called kind a of Native American ritual. 
Yes. What's, yeah. What's the idea behind that? What's the thinking? Uh, so it's it's a it's essentially a blood pack before going into into war. Cholo ritual. Cholo. There we go. Wait. There's no kind of effort made to really explain that, is it? It's it's quite obtuse, and as much as they just get on with it, and no one says what they're doing. But uh, but I think again that's going back to the fact that he doesn't he never explains the purposes for his antagonist. The scene where the little girl gets killed. Brilliant. <laughs> How hardcore was that? I think we, we live in a very sort of, um, in terms of movies and violence, a very sterile sort of world today. If a kid is killed, it's always suggested you never see it. But in this film, you, you see a little girl shot. Hey, this is regular vanilla. I wanted vanilla twist. That was incredible. That, that, that took my breath for a little bit because I really wasn't expecting it. I was waiting for the camera to cut away and it didn't do it. It was quite interesting later on in his career when Carpenter did the Masters of Horror series. Mm. Uh, he did, uh, when they originally signed up for the Masters of Horror, they were allowed to do anything they wanted. The two things that they couldn't do, any of the directors mm -hmm. couldn't do, was show uh, child death or uh, male nudity. So Carpenter's, I, I don't know whether he's ever done male nudity, I don't <laughs> think so, uh, but, but certainly that child death is, is quite shocking and got it banned in certain states in, really? yeah, in the US. I can believe it. Yeah, but, but actually the film gained a lot of popularity here in Germany. Right. What did make me smile was afterwards you see the ice cream man murders, but yet you don't see the shot for the ice cream man. The camera cuts away no. before you see him shot. But kids is fine. Shows kid murdered kids. That's, that's absolutely, absolutely fine. Well, I don't know what the difference between vanilla and vanilla swirly. <laughs> but there was the whole there's a whole thing with her dad at the beginning. You know when her dad's driving the car and they're talking about the dad's new part yeah. or something. Uh, no, it? it was the it was the grandmother. They were trying to get the grandmother they into a house or whatever. Yeah. That's right. I don't think that was necessarily necessary, but it was a nice yeah. character. I, I almost think that's a, that whole bit's a red herring. Uh, yes. Because a lot of people uh, yeah. have interpreted the, the, the gang storming of the police station afterwards. At, at, on Not Precinct 13, Precinct 20, actually. Yeah, yeah, that confused. Because the marketing team thought that Precinct 13 sounded more ominous. It was actually Precinct 9 in District 13. So the attack, we're, uh, the, we're kind of led on first viewing to think it's driven by the fact that they're after this guy. But, but in actual fact, a lot of kind of academics have written to say that it's a reprisal for the shooting at the start and they were just hitting a police station. I think two birds yeah. kill one stone. Yeah. One, two, two birds, one stone, I think. Because they, they do chase that bloke to the police they do, station, yeah. don't they? It's, there's a whole scene um, once they've killed the little girl where the, the her dad confronts the gang and they're out in the open firing guns at each other, which I thought looked a bit... I don't know, it, it just looked a bit um, amateurish. Yeah. So they're both standing literally a couple of foot away from each other, missing each other with guns. But I guess that was, that was due to a lack of bug. It also made me feel that the gang themselves, multicultural gang that they were, um, was it, it, it's almost like they walked out of a Walter Hill film. So they walked straight out <laughs> of the Warriors, straight into Assault on Precinct 13. Since you bring it up, let's, let's uh, 
we touch upon multiculturalism. I think all of his casts are quite well, quite yeah. balanced, aren't they? Um, obviously, like the things, quite a balanced cast. Um, they live. One of the things that made me laugh about them when they lived was like poverty is very multicultural. Yes. You know? But when um, the the man hides out in the police station and those in the police station are forced to defend it, the movie came across as very Halloween like. They were peering out the window at the, at the, um, at the cars in the car park, uh, which I really liked. I thought there was some real good tension going on there. Do you think it had the qualities of a slasher movie at all? I, told you, I'm, I mean, we've, we've talked previously about the idea that. Unfortunately, the gunplay and the cutting in the gunplay makes the makes whole plot a little weak anyway, and and it it seems more like he was actually aiming for that siege mentality. Um, am I right in thinking this is the same year as Halloween? Uh, no, I think Halloween came along a little later. Yeah, it's a few Halloween years. 80. Halloween's yeah, it's in seventy nine eighty. Double checking that now. Oh, 78. So two years after this. Well, it was interesting the fact that the gang got bigger, but but then by the kind of the final scenes when they were trapped down in the, in like, the, in the basement in the yeah. corridor, uh, all of a sudden that, that entire gang seemed to be kind of dissipated <laughs> with, with one explosion, which seemed rather strange. You have a favourite scene in this movie at all? Um. I kind of like the I I kind of like the the witticism so the coffee stuff and the, <laughs> the other genius is Napoleon keep asking for a cigarette yep all the way through and actually that's a theme in every carpenter film the, the, there's some mention of cigarette or or we won't talk about it but in an escape uh, from LA into LA from LA that uh, classic yeah um, he's constantly asking because cigarette because cigarette's been outlawed. So it's almost a symbol for Carpenter, I think, the cigarette of, of kind of rebellion and anti-establishment. There's a great scene um, which got me thinking of the slasher movie genre where the telephone repairman's hanging from his harness off the telephone lines. Amazing scene. Yeah, we're jumping the blood. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And it sticks with you. But, it, but there is a there is an overall general kind of feeling of menace. And I think it it establishes a lot rather than Dark Star, which I don't think is as... It's not as obvious when you watch Dark Star of what Carpenter's going to do. But I think in Assault on Precinct 13, there's very much a lot of signposts there where you can say, yes, this is in the thing, this is in Halloween. He takes a lot of his motives forward, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. Um, I liked as well the fact that the gang used guns with silencers. So it was very, very kind yeah. of creepy, very eerie, and also you can't hear the guns. And and actually, that's a great scene as well, where the uh, the other the outgoing sheriff or the other policeman goes out to see what's happening, and he gets shot, and they all think he's actually playing a game. That's right, because they haven't heard. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I did like as well. At the end of it was a bit of a homage to the A team. You know, when they they're trapped in the basement with everything they need to like fend fend off the badness. <laughs> Again, it got, I think I think it went up a notch in terms of violence there, didn't it, towards yeah. the end? They massacred all the gang in the, um, in the corridor. And actually, actually, at that point, the female character, um, whose name escapes me... But see, I, th- I think that speaks a lot to the female characters in the movie. Lee. But you don't, yeah, you don't particularly Lee. learn much about her. No, 
but but it's weird because she goes from being quite kind of quite a a strong female to the end to to being a kind of romantic figure because there's obviously something between her and Napoleon even though he's a you know w yeah w we understand he's a serial killer a la Ice Cube in Grave Saint Mars. Yeah, welcome to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> To be fair, I think this is a much better performance and it's yes. more, more believable as well. Yeah. But um, moving moving forward, the precinct 13, what stands out for you as things that Carpenter takes forward to his other movies? Uh, that The idea of the, the preternatural um, antagonist. Uh, very much the flawed hero. Uh, because actually, you know, between uh, Bishop... And Napoleon, that there's that there's kind of the two sides of the same coin. You know, one's one's the good guy, and actually, you can almost see the the eighties action hero in the bishop. First day on the job, <laughs> all of a sudden something happens to him. He wasn't expecting it. Should have been routine. It's... Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is his first day as a policeman, and he got into trouble as a, as a kid. And one of the policemen helped him out by taking him to the station, but not prosecuting him. Do you know where that story's from? From Hitchcock. Yeah, from it's actually story. stolen from Hitchcock. Is it really? Yeah, because Hitchcock's dad dragged him to a yeah. police station. All right. To, to basically scare that was him, the, like, not to, to scare him, and that's how he disciplined him, I think. Nice. Yeah. And my dad did the same thing to my brother, but he didn't have quite the same career. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Your dad was a teacher. He was. He was. <laughs> we, we, we also have to talk about the music in this film. I, John Carpenter's approach of writing, directing, and doing the music much reminds me of um, Robert Rodriguez. The same sort of thing, isn't it? Robert Rodriguez yes, produces, yes. edits. But, but John Carpenter has talent. He did it long before. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I quite like Rodriguez. Stop me from wrong. And I mean, the other thing is that Carpenter basically, uh, along with a couple of others like Goblin in... Uh, uh, who did Suspiria? George Romero. No, it was Italian director. Uh, but along with Goblin, who did the... the, the for those Gallo well, films, uh, this this is really the first time since been used. Yes, Argento. Yeah, correct. Yeah, there yes, Argento yeah. and Goblin. <laughs> I want to start again? <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, another interesting fact is the bass line in the Salt and Precinct Thirteen is used by U two in uh, New Year's Day. Really? That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's exactly the same bass line. And bizarrely, this is set on New Year's Eve. It is, I because they film. were going to close it down for the New Year. That's a nice little uh, yeah. <laughs> bit of information. I really like the dude who played um, Ethan Bishop as well. I thought he had a right poise to him as an actor. I never saw him again. No, I looked at that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, his name escapes me, but I did look him up on um, Internet Movie Database. He's, he didn't get on so There's much. Austin Stoker. Yeah. He's yes. 73 now. Bram's brother. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he was in 53 different things, but I don't think any of them are, are of note. Like, like, sort of like 80s movies. Like, he was in Two Shades of Blue. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah. Wait for that to come out on DVD. I don't know. A couple, a couple episodes of Falcon Crest. <laughs> Ooh, Air, oh, he was yeah. an investigator in Airwolf. Wow. There we go. Oh, no, there no, we no. go. I'm sure he still died on that <laughs> one. Yeah, but, but yeah, I, I think, I think as, a, as, a, as a second movie, or obviously we've never made movies, but... As a second movie, I I think it's 
it really stands the test of time. I much prefer this to some of his later stuff. Yeah. He, he did do a lot of his best work towards the earlier parts of his career. And just to prove Mr. Wood's point, we leap forward in time to 2001, Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. This uh, film was directed by Carpenter, produced by Carpenter, written by Carpenter and Larry Sulkis, and again the music was produced by Carpenter. Starring Natasha Henstridge as Melanie Ballard, Ice Cube as James Desolation Williams, Pam Greer as Helena, and uh, Joanna Cassidy as Whitlock. Well, I have to say, I've, I've got to start this one. This is not a good film. <laughs> but I have to say, I've got some very, very fond memories of this film. This was um, back in the um, latter days of student life. This was, uh, you'd, you'd gone out of a night out, you'd been out for several hours, you come in four in the morning, you go around a mate's house, you borrow a DVD, what do you borrow? Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> it was just the perfect post-pub, post-club uh, movie just to stick on in the background where you, you can't even comprehend anything, let alone watch an actual movie. And on the base of that, this was a DVD I borrowed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, watching it back, and I've seen it time since, it's it's... It's it's much along the lines of uh, say like a Resident Evil two. It's not a great film, but you roll in at four in the morning. It's a bloody good film. It's <laughs> <laughs> so blindly drunk you can't yeah, see the plot holes. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> when it all makes perfect sense. <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting because this actually came after Vampires, and I always thought for some reason I always thought Vampires followed Ghosts of Mars. It's because Vampires is even worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like evolution. And you think, how did they give him another film after yeah. Vampires? <laughs> but, I mean, this was originally conceived as the third in the Snake Plissken trilogy, and this yeah. was going to be Escape from Mars. Wow. And Yeah, so that would have been pretty awesome, hence why originally he wanted to cast Jason Statham in the, the leading role, but uh, obviously foreshadowing what everyone else would go on and see and see Jason Statham as the action star. Um, he was turned down. You stopped from doing that because the film needs more star power. So naturally, you get Ice Cube and, and to <laughs> do Sasha the Rob. But uh, I, well, Natasha Henstridge. I've, oh, yeah, I've got, uh, we'll come, I've, I've got to defend Natasha Henstridge. She's horribly miscast in this role. I think everybody's horribly miscast in this movie. Granted, but she, well, she kept clothes on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which, which doesn't work in her favour. I, I actually think she's a better actress than she's given credit for. I just yeah. think. This role originally they they wanted to cast Courtney Love, uh, yeah. and my God, you can see her in that role. This she's meant to be a drug addict who's strung out. She's years, you know, went into her um, her time and you know policing space and all, and policing Mars, and someone like that would have been perfect. But the problem with Natasha Henstridge is she's tall, she's statuesque, she's she's pretty perfect. She, as a woman, as, yeah. as you know, as certainly in a static level, the way she talks, the way she acts, it's all very prim and proper. You know, the perfect model. So she's not bad. She's just really badly miscast in this role. See, I'd have loved to have seen Courtney Love's version Courtney because Lair. this film is so bad that even a even an earnest Courtney Love performance could not fuck it up. <laughs> uh, not not anymore. No, anyway, it needed you know? something to it, all the all the everyone plays this film straight. And you needed someone who knew what type of film they were in 
and really played up to those. But there wasn't Courtney Love coming off the back of the People versus Larry, Larry Flynn. 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 Yes. Oscar nominated, I Yeah, so would she have been a bit too lovey? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if she was on one of her post-Oscar meltdowns after this, oh, right, when right. she started throwing her makeup at Madonna and things like that, <laughs> as you do. And uh, But yeah, I mean... Yeah. Well, yeah, even Statham, love him or hate him, does one thing particularly well, and that's kind of your kind of quirky sort of um, mouthy English bloke who likes to jump over bullets and do high kicks with a really bad American accent. accent. Well, no, in this film, it sounds like he's putting the English accent on. <laughs> <laughs> There's this god awful scene towards the beginning where they're playing, um, they're playing cards on the train. Yeah. Brief aside, the trains in this, I actually really liked the opening shot of the trains. Yes, they actually worked. Again, they look like they're on a budget, but it works. I would presume they were modelled. They they mixed, didn't they? So it was CGI plus like a half-scale model or something. Right, okay. Because the opening shots, I would say, were probably models. I don't think they were CGI. Well, I suppose you've got to add in the dust and the um, to make it look yeah. like it's on Mars rather than just a train on Earth. Some really nice visuals. I really liked yeah. that opening scene with the truck, the out the, the exterior of the train coming into Mars. I really liked, and also he did the score himself. Uh, yeah, where well, he underpinned the score himself. And what they did was they gave the score to other various artists. So this is the this score is actually written by him, and then people like Steve Vai, Buckethead from uh, Guns and Roses. Uh, Robin Fink, who was uh, Nine Inch Nails bassist for a while. He was. That's pretty cool. Uh, Anthrax and uh, Ellie Easton, who was in the cars, uh, basically overdubbed guitar over his so basic It should keyboard. be better than it is, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, to be fair, the, the music isn't yeah, yeah. too bad. No, it goes, I quite it gets like a bit it. new metal in places. Da -dum, da -dum, but then he goes, <laughs> then he has, there's two tracks that are like really blues in it as well. So you go from kind of jumping on the grunge new metal bandwagon. <laughs> Remind me about the blues when we get to They Live. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think the track was called Can't Let You Go in, on the Ghost Mars. And I thought it sounded a bit like a mixture between Kenny G and Jeff Healy. <laughs> That's always a win. Yeah. <laughs> That's a recipe for uh, a win. I think one of my main problems with this movie is it's told in a flat. And it starts off, it's been told as the court martial. Um, from the yeah, told in flashbacks. But then it goes into flashbacks of the flashbacks, which from a structural point of view is just awful. It's like Inception. Again, but this is watchable. <laughs> yeah, This is actually a coherent film. I liked the idea, and I'm going to mispronounce this word, matriarchal society. Yeah, that's... They should have done they, more with that, though. He, he kind of gives you that. He throws you a bone. It's like, this is a matriarchal society. But go somewhere further with it, have all the cops be women. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I said that to you earlier, didn't yeah. I, Neil? That would have been interesting. That's maybe. an actual thing. <laughs> you know, make 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 that happen rather than... It's a matriarchal society, but the guys still, and the women still act exactly the same. Yeah. But it might look like, it might be a bit gimmicky, maybe. But at least you can make it would make this movie a bit different if you had a strong female lead with a load of other strong female arse kickers. I want to talk gimmicks. Let's talk yeah. Pam Greer being the, the lesbian sugar mama. For some which, reason. Which makes no reason. <laughs> no. Yeah, sorry, Apart from it, reason, it, makes no sense. it is, it is it's a hark back to when Pam Greer did a lot of those like caged heat stuff as yeah, well. She did a lot of the women prison movies. For, the, for this particular plot, it informed nothing no. other than she wouldn't sleep with the blonde chick. Yeah. 
Oh, the Blonchick button I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Natasha Henstridge. Henstridge, thank you. Yeah, it, it serves nothing to the plot yeah. at all. It should be used as a way of bringing characterizations, and someone should have latched onto that and gone, right, we can do something with this. But no. Or just creating tension. <laughs> or just, yeah, and or building something. Yeah, you know? it may as well not be there. But you kind of get the feeling that that was stunt casting. Yes, massively. Yeah, on the basis of Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Well, is, it, is it not just more for the argument that it, an actor's performance is tempered and sometimes carried through by the director? Because Quentin Tarantino, love him or hate him, got, a good, got, a, yeah, <laughs> got a good performance from Pam Grier and Jackie Brown. Like, I, th- I think she's actress. much better in Jackie Brown than she is this. Yeah, she's yeah. not really given much to do in this. No, no. apart from oh, being slightly, slightly menacing, predatory yeah. lesbian. <laughs> but quite <laughs> interestingly, again, the soundtrack. So rather than have her character's name, which is uh, Helena in it, because she gets a uh, spoiler alert, she gets her head chopped off. Yeah, as do most yeah, of the cast. Um, but quite interestingly, uh, they have Dismemberment Blues is name of one track. Amazing. But then it has Pam Greer's head is one of the other tracks. And I thought, well, it wasn't even Helena's head. Think from Nine Nails probably had something yeah. to do with that. <laughs> There's a scene um, pretty early on where they go into a holding cell on Mars. And I think they find people hidden in there, don't they? Yeah. Oh, one of the Earth on the balloon. Yeah, which I thought was a really good scene. I wanted to see more of the balloon flight because that would have made a much more interesting movie than what we actually saw. Yes. I digress. <laughs> there was a load of actors in that holding cell and I presume they must all be actors of note. They must be sort of like B-movie actors or someone that... Carter's admired previously. It looked like none of them had acted before. Well, there's the old chick who wore the leather. And I, I presume she's, she's quite an old chick. She's got to have been in something else. There's got to be some merit for her being here. But not particularly. <laughs> I looked for her acting credits and I couldn't see anything that Carpenter would have seen and thought... Maybe, maybe it's just it. we need to cast someone on a budget and that person will do. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> Has the guy from Ain't It Cool... Harry Knowles? Is, is in it, isn't he? Is that Harry, not the big yeah, fat bloke? Yeah, he's Harry a Knowles. dead bloke. Is he? It? Yeah. There's, there's quite a lot of little bits of stunt casting, so I wouldn't put it past with the, the prison scene. But yeah, he's, his head's on a pike somewhere, but he actually oh, they cool. CGI'd him, so he'd, he'd had the full thing kind of taken of his head. Oh, okay. We'll that just... seems like a lot of effort for a blink in your mess. He does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think he does. it continues um, Carpenter's love of the Western, doesn't it? You know, you start off with the train coming into town. Yeah. This is very much a western. And it's a ghost town. Isn't yeah. It? I thought it was worth people. It was worth mentioning. Yeah, well, it's it's teaming up with the bad guys to take on an even more uh, perilous threat. Which would have been the Indians. Today. Which would be ends. Which I mean, they Native Americans. The Native Sorry, Americans, Native yes. Americans, yeah. And while we get there, we need to talk about the ghosts of Mars. Yeah. Can I say something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody else watch this and think Serenity? No. Because they're just the Reavers. <laughs> all, all the ghosts of Mars are... Well, this came Reavers. before Firefly. Yeah, okay. So, but yeah, I mean, the the one thing that always got me about these guys, I mean, granted, it's they are what they are, but this is why, if you're going to do a race that has its own language... You need to spend time working on how, what that language is going to sound like. Yeah, Peter Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because having a whole race of people talking like, blah, 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 does not work. No. And, and again, I think 
he did cite Rio, I'm probably Rio, Rio Bravo. Bravo again, mm. uh, as, as an influence. And I actually think it's it's quite offensive because they <laughs> you could say that the ghosts of Mars are actually Native American people mm. because they apparently they're pissed off, aren't they? Because man's well, the disease so. that's landed on their surface or yeah, something. Well, it's some ancient curse that's... Yeah. You know, it's done the evil dead thing where it's like and floating <laughs> around people and it possesses you and makes you go some kills some of some people. Some people go crazy. crazy. Um, and some people are unaffected by it. Yeah. Only if they take drugs. <laughs> yeah. Only if they take clear. <laughs> they don't they don't make enough of that. No. To, to me there should be a scene where all of the good guys start taking drugs just to survive towards the end of it. Which, which, which could lead to a fantastic action sequence yeah. of Jason Statham and Ice Cube off their tits. Fighting, <laughs> but you see, I thought they were off the tits anyway because we're told that if you kill the host, it just moves to another host. So, yeah. what is the point of shooting <laughs> everybody dead? That that got on my tits after a while. That that the um the pub shot, you know, with the with the reds and the, yeah uh, yeah when that, the that, that was around, annoying. Yeah. They had to stop sooner rather than later. <laughs> but again, that that was just really really badly done. They could have done anything else rather than just missed. Did it remind takes anybody over else people. of Dusty Dawn? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Just me then, fair enough. No, I get what you mean. I get the influences by it, which is kind of a western with a bunch of creatures and against a, a small band of people. So yeah, I get I get that, but no. <laughs> At one point I did write in my notes that it's like um, Fury Road's stupid and slower cousin. <laughs> but there is, there is an argument there in the fact, actually, he tries to you know we've talked we talked we've talked in about some of the other films about the preternatural supernatural antagonist and yes. not not needing a reason to attack okay this they film... actually try to give him a backstory yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work it really doesn't work this film not only do they need a reason they need a clear reason yeah because it's there was the whole thing at the end on the train when they try to escape and you've got the um lead martian Mm. It was never named or anything like that. Well, it probably was, like, was, but it's probably Dave. Yeah, King, Dave. <laughs> Martian Dave. Yeah. Martian Dave. Martian Dave. Martian Dave chasing him, and I'm like, this is like Fury Road, but not exciting. <laughs> it really needed something else. It needed, I think, at the end of it, the train explodes or something. Well, they pretty much, yeah. I they think they all kind of die the getting on the train. Well, Natasha Henstridge has, has to get back because she has to tell the story. Because she has to tell the story in flashback, which doesn't work <laughs> at all. It's that that whole scene is only there for right at the end. Ice Cube can burst in and go, they're here, and so try and set up a sequel. It becomes like a bloody no cop movie at the end of it. But yeah, none, none of what had come before really sort of. But again, if if you know that the people are going when if, when they, they kill them, the thing's going to come out. Why would you arm yourselves up and go and try and yeah. shoot them all? Why didn't we just think we're fucked? Let's go. <laughs> or, or if they've discovered about the drug thing, why aren't they giving everybody that they? You know, like shooting yeah. the drugs into people or whatever. Yeah, they, walking off an intravenous drip. Yeah. <laughs> they should have been narcotic cops sitting on a stash. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that, that they, they should have had like a bent cop who was trying to use sell it off himself and then they had to use the stash. We, we might have to cops. trademark this because this might be in there. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like a much better movie. It does sound like a better yeah. there's, there's the guy who uh, has like the inhaler that gets him off his tits and he winds up chopping off his thumb that trying great. to open that up the cam. That's actually that. a very good sequence. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, again, if they're still, I mean, are they using that to fend off the spirits? Are they just getting loaded because they can? Just loaded because they're criminals. Yeah. Because, given, yeah. It's never given a kind of 
practical payoff. No. The action sequences were okay. Uh, there was a couple of group fight scenes where they're, they're outside and they're fighting all the Martians advancing. Yeah, they weren't terrible. They I, weren't. I, I would think it would have been nice to have like a, a situation like in Aliens when you have just the guns and they're all just charging towards you and you just gun them down. Yeah. That could that could have worked. A proper siege movie and they have them all I fighting. I don't think he had the budget for that. I think that's why you get the sort of the handheld. Yeah. Plus. 30 mil. 30 mil. 30 mil. 30 mil. When you think... Mile. Resident Evil was about 80 mil and it was made about the same time. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah. Did this movie have any redeeming features? Again, the I, end? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, no, because I thought the end was terrible. That movie yeah. goes through the door and all of a sudden no, they're I, I think it's the action the credits. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I like the atmosphere it sets up. But basically, up until they meet Ice Cube, I don't mind this film. I think it's it sets it up interestingly. They It's not in a great way, but they, they come to a ghost town... They find things have happened to people. I quite like that. That's almost like the Predator setup. Yeah, it's like I can cope with that. Then once they meet the Martians and meet Ice Cube, it, it goes wrong. Like I said, I really like the scene in the hot air balloon. You know, when she's telling the story and it cuts to footage again, a flashback mm. within a flashback of the Doctor floating over Mars in the air balloon. Yeah, I'd like to see a movie about somebody floating over Mars in an air balloon. I'd pay to see that. Yeah. <laughs> right, I believe there's one just come out in France. Yes, <laughs> it's six hours long. <laughs> it's shot in real time. Balloon de Mars. Yes, there was one part that was particularly appalling. <laughs> oh, people! <laughs> balloon. There's a scene between Desolation Williams and the blonde chick. Where he grabs the he grabs the the rookie dude, and she actually says to him, "I can't let you take the rookie. Take me." What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> was the rookie the other girl? I was Claire there, Duval. Right, yeah, there was yeah, two, yeah, wasn't okay, there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was there was a chick and there was a bloke. The more I think about it, the more I do really like the idea of a female police force. Yeah, again, it should have been a thing. There were so many things in this film that should have been a thing yeah. and, to and be just fair, weren't. Claire Duval wasn't bad. I think, I think she was hindered by the script, but I didn't think she was appalling. I think she was one of the better actors in it. At least she tried to create a character which is more than Ice Cube did. Yeah. Yeah, I, just, Ice Cube yeah. is a lot better in Are We There, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's a lot more medicine in Are yeah. We There, yeah. Or even 21 Jump Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know what more medicine in Are We There, yeah? There's a man who needs a paycheck. He's motivated. <laughs> <laughs> Just out off the top of your heads, are there any good um, Ice Cube performances? He was all, he was all right in uh, NWA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some would say he was living his gimmick. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think once now he's earned his, uh, his, his money now. I was getting confused. But, but I... I always get Ice Cube confused with Ice Cube. Yeah, yeah. Ice Cube. Okay. There, there is the. I mean, to be fair to Ice Cube, it was really badly written. You oh, know, if you compare it to Napoleon Wilson, yeah, from Assault on Precinct Thirteen, he was a lot more likable. Man, a few words, a lot like, but had menace, didn't he? He had he had a genuine menace about him, especially in the kind of the prison yard at the start. Mm. Yes, with the prison warden. So why they why it couldn't been written for Ice Cube in the and same way? If you way. think if you think it's just a case of very very poor cheesy one liners, at least he pulls it up a little bit better with Rowdy Piper in the group because that was a man who we'll, had lots we'll, of we'll come to that yeah. we'll come to that. Yeah. But how much amazing more amazing I just thought this would this film would have been if they have the whole setup and they they get to the jail they find Desolation Williams but it's actually Snake Plissken. 
there's the, your film. He, he you has know, the, he has know, the code name. He has the, yeah. There's, you there's know your what film. I thought you were going to say? Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> 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 I ain't getting on no motherfucking spaceship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that would have wiped out, at that time, would have probably wiped out their 30 mil. It probably would have done, yeah. He was riding high about yeah. that. I think we should leave it there because I don't. I don't think anything this film actually so does can surpass let's, that. Let's lay the ghost to rest. Yes. Next, we're going to talk about one of the many Kurt Russell John Carpenter collaborations, and probably one of Carpenter's most famous films, The Thing from 1982. This film was only directed by Carpenter and was written by Bill Lancaster with music by Ennio Morricone. The Thing had previously been made as The Thing from Another World by director Christian Nyby, although it's normally attributed to producer Howard Hawks. It's based on a short story, Who Goes There in 1938, by John W. Campbell. Well, I know um, John Carpenter said that, um, because this film did not do well theatrically, and he blames it on the success of E.T. He says uh, their their alien was good, friendly, mine wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one of the reasons that it wasn't a great film, but this, I mean, this is a film that's now widely regarded as one of the greatest films ever made, and certainly in top hundreds of all time, most definitely, and it's probably my second favourite horror movie, Mr. Stu. First uh, John Carpenter movie I ever saw. Brilliant. Still, still stick with today. I think even mm. though some of the special effects should be dated, it loses none of its power. But most films that came out this, you know, like special effects laden films that came out this Around this time, I look horribly dated. This Absolutely. you can still get away with this. This looks a lot like um, Hell, Hellraiser. I think the special mm. effects look very similar to Hellraiser. And Hellraiser was like eighty-five, so like three years later. It was Stan Winston, wasn't it? Yes. Did Stan Winston do um, Hellraiser? As well? Not sure. He Don't. did American Wealth in London, though. Yes, he did. I yes, I think. He did. No, he didn't. Rick Baker did American Wealth in London. Yeah. Uh, Stan Winston, yeah, great, great special effects in that, and and haven't really dated because they used a lot of practical effects. Exactly. If you so. want, yeah, one of the things to hold up, use practical. I mean, the um, they did a thing, sequel, prequel, a few years back. That um, I mean, that they used predominantly CGI for the special effects, and it looked shit the minute it came out. And co- even compared to a film that was made twenty five years previous, it doesn't stand up. No. <laughs> I really like the opening to this film as well. This is the one of the greatest openings to a film. Just a film that opens with a helicopter chasing a dog to kill it with guns and grenades, and you think, why? <laughs> it seems very over the top. It, it does, yeah. It's like just, uh, and then it sets up the characters well, who does what and who reacts and how they react. It's just a brilliant opening, and it's set. It's an opening that starts you off with so many questions, hmm. but it, it doesn't actually answer. No. A lot of the, a lot of the questions are left completely unanswered. I would argue you don't learn much about much of the characters, many of the characters, but that doesn't matter because it's not about the characters; it's about the threat that's going from it. But this is one of the best films for listening to the director's commentary for, because right. um, I know they all because it was very much a boys' club when they filmed it, so it was very much all together. One of the first things that happens when you get a bunch of heterosexual men together, the first thing that that goes is your your hygiene. So that's why a lot of them are scruffy looking, have long beards. I mean, then they all built their own backstories for each character. For example, Kurt Russell's character, uh, he's meant to be an ex-Vietnam pilot. I presume. Yeah, Vietnam, yeah. And, and that's why he has the ridiculously big hat as well. It's just anything that could give him some form of character. So we don't learn anything about these, but really we do pick up a lot about these characters. 
and like the only one that's clean shaven is the the guy with the keys and the gun. Is that the dude from um, LA Confidential? Yes. Yes. I wonder, what I wanted to know in the opening scene of the gunfight, why the fuck did he smash the window glass? They're in the Arctic, okay? And, he, and he's like, oh, well, yeah, I would enjoy him with this gunfight. Smash. What's up with that? <laughs> I think it's for accuracy. <laughs> but no, a great opening. I like the fact you don't learn much about the pilot of the helicopter. Mm. He just wants to get that dog. Uh, that is a great opening. And they speak a foreign language. They do. But you can't ask them what the problem no, is. No, exactly. It's quite interesting as well, because uh, one of the other fail the reasons it failed, or the, 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 the failure has been attributed to, was because a dog was killed in the opening scene. Well, I, I, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a lot of dog deaths Yeah, yeah, film. a lot of... He's got <laughs> in for dogs in this film. Yeah. I, I did think <clears throat> the scenes with the dogs, especially in the, in the pen, that must have been a nightmare to shoot. That's, how how oh. do you get all of those dogs to do exactly? It must have been very hard yeah. to get them all to do exactly what was needed. The, uh, just to, as an aside with the dogs, there's an, an even more impressive sequence where during when I think it's before we've had the big, the, the dogs have gone crazy. There's one where the dog is just walking down a hallway, just one husky, and he stops and looks into a room, turns back, walks down the hallway, stops, pauses, looks in another room, and then walks through when he sees someone's shadow that's in there. And you think that's a dog? That's it's a just dog. yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, the yeah the, the animal acting in this is quite astounding, really. Better than Ice Cube in Ghosts and <laughs> Yes, it is. Yes. If they'd only cast the dog <laughs> <laughs> again, it would have made a much better film. Quite <laughs> interesting. Uh, Kurt Russell said of the thing at the time, you know, it reminds me of the Disney films I did when I was younger. More gruesome, sure, but you never know how the creature is going to react. This <laughs> <laughs> is. I've always understood Kurt Russell to be like um, John Carpenter's go-to Jobs. guy. Yeah, go-to guy, much like um, Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. Yes. Yeah. Or now Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. yeah. I, we'll get to this later, I'm sure, but I've always wondered why he was never in the list. Because that, that, that's the no, kind of role they, that Yes, they, he originally was going to be cast in the role, but John Carpenter felt he'd been cast in his last two or three movies yeah. and wanted somebody different. That was all. The role was written for him. And that's the reason why Bridges did Starman mm. rather than Kurt Russell. Because right. you, actually, you actually see a lot of Kurt Russell in Jeff Bridges' performance. And actually, mm. Jeff Bridges is kind of Kurt Russell. He's a, a bit clean there, yeah. cut, but <laughs> definitely kind of Kurt Russell. There was a, there's a point where they're watching um, video camera footage from the Norwegian crew. Mm. That, that's just um, Carpenter's love of 50s movies up there on the screen, isn't it? Yeah. Black and white footage. Massively, yeah. You know, there's a spaceship. Yeah. It's a 1950s movie. And and there was a feeling that it, it was a direct homage to a uh, thing from another world because that was a black and white film. So actually having the black yeah, and white images, he was paying a little nod and a wink there. Absolutely. And I really like the idea that you only see the top of the spacecraft. I yeah. think from a budgetary point, yeah, I mean, it's we only see like one wide shot of it, which is a matte painting, which actually still looks not too yeah. bad, all things considered. It's a very wide shot, which I think helps. But um, I think a lot of films probably you wouldn't have seen much of the spaceship at all, but the fact they have any of it, I think uh, it's quite a credit to it. And like very minimal, yeah, which I, which I liked. I thought worked really well. I said this when I saw The Hateful Eight, and then I saw somebody writing about it in The Guardian, and they said the, right, the same thing. Do you think do you think Hateful Eight was kind of a remake of this to a certain degree? I can't conceive of the two films being together because one's Tarantino and it's awful and one's John Carpenter and it's amazing. 
but given how steep Tarantino is in his film history, I mean, come on, honestly, can you think but one eye in the corner? I think if you're going to make any kind of film that is set in a you know a snowy world that's where you're cut off from civilization, you're in you know in, in this peril, you are going to be compared to the thing because it's the film that does it the best. So I think it brings natural comparisons. And, and again, it's actually a siege film because it's a siege it's a from within, siege film, isn't yes. it? Yeah, it is. It's it's every John Carpenter film in one. Yeah. <laughs> It's, you know, we, we're not given why the antagonist attacks them other than it's an alien and why not. I have this crazy theory that the the reason they use red flares is to do with the conflict. You know, the idea that the, uh, the body snatchers are supposed to be red. Yes, um, yeah. That's so quite interesting. Yeah. They, they had the guy in the shank down in a red flare. Yeah. Into, um, yeah, well, they lock him away in a shack. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, I think it was Kerbal. They, they light him up. Flares, yeah. back in, bring me back inside, take, take, bring me in from the cold. I'm like, yep, he's a communist. <laughs> but again, I think a lot of the main theory behind it was the AIDS epidemic, which I think was what John Carpenter written about. No one really understood it. Right. No, you know, it was this strange we illness that kills people. Of. We didn't know what it's capable of. Yeah. You couldn't tell who had it and who didn't. And I think that was the main reasoning behind um, the, the creatures. I think the original move, the original. Um, the thing moved the thing from another place was kind of stereotypical monster movie where he's just going like rrr, yeah. rrr, rrr. whereas this is a more kind of subtle and with a lot of undercurrents of, of what was around during the day and uh, well, I think yeah Carpenter has gone on record as saying it is about the AIDS epidemic at the time I think one of my favourite of the creature effects is the part when the dog's face bursts open that's so terrifying you know when the, the dog's in the pen and then his face kind of opens up to the way down well, it's, it's what is the worst thing that could possibly happen at that point was the thing that no one is going to expect yeah. <laughs> that sells it in an instant and all like the tentacles that's mm. quite cool but again the dog acting in that scene where you've got these tentacles wrapped around the dog and you're spraying them with lube and the dogs are shame on you ice cube yes yeah. <laughs> look what the dog went through yes that's called method acting <laughs> the dog upped his game yeah but now that that whole scene has gone down in history, and rightly so. It's it's still terrifying. It still has its impact today. And it might be stating the obvious, but I actually think the creature effects are a lot better. Um, the kind of smaller they are, I think towards the end the, the effect the effect makers get a bit brazen, and we start to see a much bigger monster. Yeah, and I don't think that stands up as well as the shots of the dog's face opening up. Well, like the distorted man. Yeah, I don't. They're kind of fit to burst. Yeah, yeah. like the hole in his stomach and that. Yeah. yeah, was it? Was the was the hole in the stomach one after they? I think was it was it the heart night. attack? They think yes, heart yes, that's uh, yeah. yeah. And actually, it's really strange because they they move the tension in the scene from him dying yeah. to him actually being the doctor his arms yeah. Yeah. bitten off. I think one scene that we really, really have to talk about is the scene where they're testing the blood. Oh, yes. the tension in that's amazing. Such a great, great sequence. I was sat there yesterday watching it at home on DVD and that stuff got me. Mm. And you think of films that 
have strong openings and you know may have a decent ending, but they lack that little bit of something in the middle to really carry on through. Yeah. This film captures that perfectly. Absolutely. This is a slow, tension-filled sequence that you genuinely don't know which way it's going to go. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. It carries mm. the tension very well. And again, they tried to do, again, I don't really want to talk about the, the sequel-prequel that came out, but they do try and do similar things, try and mimic it, and it's just awful. And it really just makes this film, that scene, stand out all the more that it's done so, so right. What What do you two think about his decision? Because uh, if you compare it to the thing from Another World, uh, it's a lot of shadow play, and it's only at the end of that film that the monster comes out. It's basically a man in a, a fireproof suit, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, they, who they then set on fire. And there's actually a conclusion to that film. Mm. Whereas Carpenter's very much, although he plays some of it in the shadows, he's very much exposing the audience to the creature. He's not doing the shadow play tension build like Halloween, for example, mm. where we are catching brief glimpses of Myers. There's a there's quite a lot of focus on the, brazen, the alien, the yeah. other. It's out in the open. Because when the alien isn't on screen, we don't know where it is. It yeah. could be anywhere, and uh, just just it's a, such a simple idea of having. You can't tell where the alien is, and it's just it's just perfect. It's perfect for tension building. There was this. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was supposed to be like a simulation or whether it was in this film journal. There's a part where Blair sits at the computer and runs a simulation. Yeah, <laughs> that's one the one thing that really does. It's one thing that does date it, but again, but, it, it was nice. It was apparently, when the film came out, that kind of caused a little bit of uproar because people said computers can't do that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> people were going, "That's just stupid. That can't happen." But they get it there and go, "Jesus." <laughs> so, which bit? Which bit was that? There's a brief scene where one of the scientists is is at his computer and he's going through the journals. I think left by Blair. Right or something, and uh, I think he he um he estimates how long it would take for the creature to spread yeah. amongst the population, and it's not twenty seven thousand hours. Was it twenty seven thousand hours? I 20, thought it was twenty seven hours. Twenty seven thousand hours, three years. For the entire population yeah. of the infected. Did you buy the fact that he went so crazy so quickly? There. Well, he was a creature. Was that when he was a creature? Yes. That was after he was been infected. Yes. We're we making a political comment now. <laughs> so, i think we really need to talk about the ending yes and brilliant which, yeah one of the most perfect endings it, it's similar to goldman's uh butch casting the sundance kid yes where they they run they out, out being just, shot at yeah yeah i would say that's true especially for this podcast of all the movies we've watched none of them have definitive endings they're all quite open-ended. Mm. Though he was asked, he has got a alternative ending for this, I believe. Yeah, I Does Kurt Russell go back Kurt, to the spaceship? Kurt Russell it, is the only one left surviving, yes. and he trundles off to... to uh, pop, one people. Yeah, probably. yeah. Right, okay. Because for some reason, I had it in my head, it ends with him going into the spaceship and just sitting down, but evidently not. That yeah. would be cool. <laughs> Kurt Russell in space. That's when it goes to Snake Plissken yeah, on yeah. Mars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> no, it's, no. A, it's a great ending because the men, they're not at war each with each other, but they're not at peace with each other. Either. No, it's, neither of them trust between. the other. No. One of them's going to fall asleep. 
before the other. <laughs> it's going to end in disaster. And it, it doesn't matter if either of them or both of them are aliens. Exactly. Because that's the ending to the film. It, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. I mean, in in theory, once the fire dies down, the temperature is going to drop. And whoever it is is going to freeze anyway, yeah. whether you're alien, human, or what. It doesn't really matter. Is it safe to say this is pretty much a high point? Uh, for me, I mean, some people would argue Halloween. For me, this is the pinnacle. This is pinnacle. This is this is where everything came together and worked perfectly. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it, it it's certainly certainly a high point. Uh, and I I actually think, and we'll come on to they live, but for me, that that actually is is quite a high. Peak as well of his career. I, I would concur with you. What um, am I right in thinking that he didn't write the score for this either? Uh, uh, I've I'm got a thing. It's Howard Silver. The reason I mention it is like Carpenter's become very famous for his mm. um his scores. Any Morricone. Okay. Oh, okay. But it just strikes me as weird for what's arguably one of his greatest achievements that he didn't score it. I, but although it's attributed to Ennio Morricone, there is some music from, and a lot of the sound effects were done on synthesizer as well. So the tension building sound effects Which weren't like, necessarily score. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I can't imagine Carpenter was like kicked out of the mixing room when they were doing the sound. For no. Him, so he probably would have been involved, just not heavily credited. So, I mean, there is, um, just as an aside, there was, a, a I think, a PC game. I'm not sure if it ventured oh, to other yeah. consoles way back when. I think 2001, I yeah, want to say. It was on Xbox. Oh, was it was Xbox yeah, as well. Yeah. It was probably multi-format then, but um, I remember old, well, one of the members of Strange of the Multiplex, Darius, have and it's at university, and that kind of followed on. I don't think it was the father off the... I don't think you were Kurt Russell following on. I think you were a member of a rescue team. And was it kind turned of? Up. I I seem to remember it was a bit Duke Nukemy meets yes. Resident Evil. Yes. Yeah, and it, there was a lot of torchlight going on. And yeah. Greens. <laughs> yeah. Well, that kind of followed on the story from what happened, but uh, I, I think this is one film. As much as I love it, I'm glad there isn't a sequel, because yeah. as we've seen with the prequel, it just it just no, needs it's not happening. Finally, happen. worth noting, you see the spaceship from the very beginning, well, mm. which is a nice. You get, you get the credits, and then you see the spaceship. Yeah. None of this pissing about us. What is it? What, what's, you know, it's made no, we don't. Yeah, we don't need to know. It's just a, a perfect organism that crashes on Earth and finds its host and takes over. Does anybody remember the X Files episode that followed hugely from this? <laughs> no. There, there, in the first season, there's an episode called Ice, uh, where a research team is drilling in the Arctic. Um, they they contract a alien worm over into more crazy Mulder and Scully starting to investigate and um, obviously they're threatened by the same kind of thing it's an absolute take off of the thing, um, it does very little that's actually original but the tension points of it are worth watching because um, you're going through all the X-Files episodes and it's into it well the, uh, the TV series Helix was basically yeah, I the started thing to watch as well. I think I vaguely, vaguely second, remember that. Yeah, the first or second episode, and I thought it had nothing new to offer. No, no. Quite interestingly, this is the first of Carpenter's what they term Annihilation trilogy. So it's one of three where basically the world will end. Okay. Through <laughs> through the events that was from the film. I think the next one in the series is. 
it's either Mouth of... No, it's Prince of Darkness, the, right. the next one. Don't ask me about the third is, I can't remember. Vampires. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's when his career... That's, yeah, that's his career <laughs> apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> but quite interestingly, because this film flopped, um, he was actually up... They expected quite a lot of things from this film. But because this film flopped, he didn't get a chance to make Firestarter, Stephen King's Firestarter. And oh, instead yeah. he made the TV film, Christie, which wasn't very good. No. <laughs> <laughs> he made a, um, an Elvis TV movie. He did, which is, is excellent. Really? Yeah it's, yeah, it's up there with Gary, the, the one with Gary Busey's Buddy Holly story. And that was the oh. first time he used Kurt Russell. Elvis film oh, okay. plays on the whole kind of Oedipal thing between Elvis and his mum. It's worth worth digging so you're out. A fan of Oedipal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oedipal Elvis movies, yep, yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> and it kind of cuts off before he becomes b- fat, bloated Elvis as well. I think it goes up to the something like the '56 special or something like that in Elvis's career. Yeah, again, it's from 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Finally, we come to Carpenter's They Live, 1988, uh, directed by Carpenter again, written by Frank Armitage, with music by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth, starring wrestling legend Rowdy Roddy Piper and Carpenter regular Keith David. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. Okay, so um, from the get-go, they lived with us a movie I used to love as a teenager. Watched it numerous times. I sat down to watch it for this podcast, and for one reason or another, I couldn't get the copy I was watching to work. So I went onto YouTube and managed to find it in like nine different chapters. Amazing. Thing is, the person who posted it had decided that he agreed with David Icke and his theories so much <laughs> that he would subtitle the movie just to show you where David Icke is right. <laughs> so, so basically, he just keeps saying lizard people. Lizard yeah, people, it, yeah. It pretty much. It pretty much. Um, there's the point where he goes into the bank and it says um, "Mission to Kill New World Order," and then it's like there's the part where he's trying to explain to um, David Keefe's character about it. And the subtitle comes up, trying to convince others. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> very bizarre. But to be fair, if you've ever read any of like David Icke's stuff or ever seen any of his documentaries, this really isn't too far fetched. No, no, this 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 is David Icke to a T. He actually refers to this film in his lectures a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen, I've watched many a David Icke lecture and. Love him or hate him, it's certainly an interesting watch. Hey, absolutely. I, know, I just thought that was a nice little aside. That yes, I if, quite like if, that. If <laughs> I could have viewed the New World Order from a mile off, this guy had me covered. I would quite like to listen to a David Icke direct, uh, commentary track <laughs> over the top of this film. Well, if, if that, there's a lot of Jewish people in this film, man. <laughs> <laughs> Lizards. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we, we started in with Rob, we were saying earlier, that this movie takes an actor, Rowdy Piper, he was born Canadian, spent a lot of his time trying to convince everybody else he was Scottish, and now he's an American, looking for the American dream. God bless America. He, he doesn't exist, does he? No, he's a drifter. No, because his character's name's Narda. Yes, Narda. Yeah. yes absolutely. Well, yeah. I don't think his name's ever spoken in the film. No, but if you look on internet movie dating, yeah, it is just as Narda. And, uh, and he's actually wearing a wedding ring, if you hadn't noticed, even though he, in the film, because he didn't want to take it off, because he was married at the time. And uh, refused to take off his wedding ring, so he's married in the film. 
So even if it was a punching Keith David. Bah, I've got yeah. a true story for you there. there they tried go. to do that as a stunt fight and it didn't work. And Rowdy Piper was just getting beat on black and blue. So he said to, he said to Keith David, screw it. We'll do it for real. If you're going to punch mm. me, punch me properly. And they spent two days beating the shit. God bless uh, one of the longest stream flights. Oh, five minutes, yeah. 25 yeah, seconds. It goes, yeah. it goes on for quite some time. When you think they're finished, they just keep going again, don't they? They do. I mean, I remember reading that it was uh, the only rule was uh, don't hit him in the face or the crotch. And so <laughs> you watch this film and basically all the f- all the punches are fake punches to the face yeah. or the crotch. <laughs> so I was like, okay. It must be up there with, is it every which way but loose? Because there's a really long fight sequence between Clint Eastwood and a the monkey guy, guy in that. No, he, is that the other he's, a, he's a he's a brawler, isn't he? That's yeah. right. Yeah, he's and a they, they fight originally. in a. I can't, I can't remember the guy's name. It's, it's someone like John Saxon, <laughs> but but they end up fighting all the way through this entire vi- <laughs> kind of village through all these different shops. I vaguely stuff. remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so where's Sonny from The Godfather when you need him? Yeah. Just <laughs> drag him over a rail and beat him to death. <laughs> this movie again starts with a train, doesn't it? Um, he. You see, well, he's, he's you crossing see, the tracks. You yeah. see Riley Piper walking from the other side of the track. It's like he's the, wrong the wrong side, side of the, of the tracks. tracks. Yeah. yeah. And and obviously there's the hobo imprint straight away there as well. He yes. looks very clean for a hobo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A wonderful haircut as well. That's got to take in some maintenance. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's freshly shaved. It's clean. And <laughs> he's looking buff as well. So it obviously pays to be a hobo <laughs> in, in Reagan America. <laughs> Living the dream. But it's not very subtle, is it? No. I think it whacks you over your head with a, like a sledgehammer about how like corporate America's evil. You watch this poor man walking the earth, and above him somewhere are the evil skyscrapers. Yeah, I mean the the themes of this film, I think, will probably never age. <laughs> <laughs> the actual story behind this film is is one that is, I think, will carry on because there's always going to be an economical class, well, so well, it'll in, always work. I, in a recent interview, Carpenter had said, "I think it was Mark. It might have been Mark Maron actually." The, the, but he'd said since Reagan, there has been more inequality. We are, we are still in the 1980s. We, we're still living or suffering because of Reaganism. Mm, I can I believe it. I will just say that the beginning bit when he was walking to the movie soundtrack kind of reminded me of uh, Bruce Springsteen's The Streets of Philadelphia. <laughs> Another age reference. Yes. There we go. 1993. But there we go. He was they was they were, they were strolling on the same streets like. But I have to say, I mean. This this is a film that takes a long time to get going, oh, yeah. and once it gets going, it really rushes it through. <laughs> I think the pace was a bit off because mm. the one minute he's walking the streets, the next he's um, Keith David buying dinner, buying him dinner, and it always it all seems to go along very very quickly. Yeah. Well, yeah. In terms of the actual plot devices going forward, really, they don't. Ultimately, start till he actually puts on the, the glasses, and that's about forty minutes into yeah. a, a ninety-minute movie. What do you guys think of the glasses? Amazing. I actually think it really works. Well. Yeah, it's very simple. Very again, impressive. it's very much on a budget, but it works. Yeah, and again, he, he looks through the glasses and he sees the black and white world, which is all back to the nineteen fifties sci-fi. Yeah, well, it's that whole paranoia thing as well. Cause yeah, there's mm. a lot of sci-fi and horror from fifties and sixties was based either around communist paranoia. <laughs> Yeah. Or the nuclear paranoia, yeah, exactly. or yeah, absolutely. There's, there is like, there's a paranoia in poverty, isn't there? Um, the idea that man's always against you, no matter what you do. Yeah, you either you either be poor all your life, or you sell out. Join in the aliens. Yes, yeah. The aliens pay you big fat money. 
but quite interestingly, the religious organisations in this are on the side of the rebellion. They are, but yes. there's, they're also kind of it's also kind of distrusting of religion because what appears to be a church gathering is actually a front for rebellion, isn't it? Yeah, you know, like even even religion is not what it's telling you. But mm. this is the only time it's against the man. So if you go to things like vampires, there's an issue with the Catholic Church. Yes, sure. there's always Dark. issues with the yeah. Catholic Church. <laughs> Prince of Darkness, exactly the same as corruption in the church. So actually, in his later years, he, he goes away from that idea that religion can represent the mass, yeah, mm. represent the common man. Again, um, multicultural poor people. When he when he goes he goes to the shanty town, it's, it's not just one particular race; it's everybody. All the yeah, everyone people, together. Which to be to be honest is probably a bit of a white man's view of poverty, <laughs> yeah. yeah, because actually it is it is more ethnically uh, biased. I think. Poverty. Am I right in thinking yeah. Piper's character comes from Detroit, or is that Keith David's character? No, Keith David said he comes from the steel mills, which which, be Philadelphia, which yeah, yeah, but one. <laughs> One thing that always amused me about that character is that he's they set him up that he's so concerned to keep his job and to send money back to his wife and kids he hasn't seen in six months. Nothing is going to affect that at all, no matter what he does. Second he puts on those glasses, he is willing to get, pick up a gun, oh, yeah. <laughs> screw his job, screw the family, I'm killing me some aliens. <laughs> I put in my notes, there was a quite nice cute meet between him and Rowdy Piper. Rowdy Piper's got his top off and he's plummeting the earth with that spade and <laughs> Keith David looks up and next thing he's offering him a meal. Yeah, i got a place you can stay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's also interesting how TV is very much the tool of the aliens, isn't it? Um, even in poverty, they have like lounges that are set up in front of TVs mm. and you, you see them walking through with the, like, um, the rabid streets you get on TV. It's settlement exits. Yeah. Is it, is it divine excess? It's one of the um, one of the fashion products they're selling like old men with beards in the street. Yeah, and they're watching like supermodels and catwalks, <laughs> which is still very up today. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. Even, even the tins of peaches have is it consume? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marry and reproduce. <laughs> reproduce. Something, something yeah. Like sleep. Yes. Yeah. Sleep. It's, again, I I love the effect of the glasses. I, I love the effect when they, uh, they're breaking the television signal uh, when they're all at the hobo camp and it's giving them a headache because yes. they're seeing things properly yeah. and it's kind of breaking that signal. I thought that was very clever and he couldn't wear the glasses for too long because it was like being on a drug. Yeah. <laughs> and also, Rowdy Piper has a bit of a counter arc as well because he starts off being him and Keith David are talking and Keith David's rather militant. David Keith? Keith David? Keith David. Keith David. Keith David. Yeah. Frank. Frank, Frank's well, we use Frank. So Frank's quite militant, and he's like, "Oh, the man's sticking it to me," and the man continues to stick it to you. And Rowdy mm. Piper's like, I've got "It's my America." Shirt off riding yeah. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rowdy Piper's like, "Oh, it's America. I, I believe I have my chance." And he stumbles across the alien plot, and Rowdy Piper becomes a villain. Yeah, and again, again both of them quite happy to give up their to just Frank. throw their values aside. Once finding out the truth, I mean, I'm not sure quite what that's meant to. No. To me, and it doesn't really have any kind of connotations for anything. It's just you hear the truth and you pick up a gun and start fighting for it. There's a wonderful scene when they go to the Shanty Village. Uh, 
Frank introduces him to this bloke, and this bloke looks at Riley Piper and says to him, but you got in that pack tools. <laughs> How does he know that? Has <laughs> <laughs> he got some kind of X-ray vision we're not privy to? <laughs> Is it just because like Riley Piper looks honest and hardworking, maybe because he's got a mullet? I don't know. But... <laughs> he's got a mullet and a check shirt, of course. <laughs> well, you got in there a championship belt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. I think we need to talk about the one-liners. Oh, do you know, I think that's the secret power to bring the glasses, bring out of him on the one-liners. Because <laughs> his dialogue just goes up brilliantly once he puts the glasses on. I know that um, when Jarvan Carpenter had, had, um, had cast him, they cast him just because he wanted someone rough and gruff and, you know, looked like he could handle himself after Kurt, you know, he didn't want to cast Kurt Russell. And Roddy Roddy Piper turned up with a notebook that he used for his wrestling and he'd write down all quips and all I, all these ideas he had for his in you know promos for his promos and uh, he basically handed that over and said you know see if you can use any of this so things like I'm here to kick ass and chew bubble gum and I'm all out of gum came from that <laughs> that wasn't a John Carpenter line that's all that's all Piper baby <laughs> as a wonderful aside there's a, a WWE documentary on Riley Piper at one point Riley Piper had coloured half of his face black yes he did that was, that was for Mr T fight was it was it really yes and the Jim Ross appears on the documentary as like the official WWF words. And Jim Ross says something along the lines of, it wasn't racist. I don't know what he was up to, but God bless him. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the boxing match of Mr. T. Back at WrestleMania. Back at, yeah, four, back at WrestleMania 3, I think it was, yeah. It was, it was quite early on. But yeah, this always makes me chuckle when I think of Jim Ross trying to excuse blatant racism. Yeah. There's a different a, my, my favourite line of dialogue Rowdy Piper spouts where he puts the glasses on. It's, it's quite early on when he goes into the supermarket. He looks at that woman <laughs> and he says to him, you know, you look like your head fell in the cheese bin back in 1957. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the relevance of 1957 was. <laughs> God, no. It was, yeah, it probably just came out of the book and <laughs> that was it. A wonderful, wonderful film. Such a simple premise and it works really well. Um, I, th- I, th- I think this is a really great premise. I'm not sure for me if they pull it off in 90 minutes. I think uh, I remember watching this film as a kid and being blown away by it, and watching it again as, a, as an adult, I feel that so much of this film is rushed towards the, certainly the the final third. And granted, when he's doing his Rambo oh, through you, the... You're having to go at the portal scene in the alleyway. Oh, uh, I, I, I saw right, oh, yeah. yourself into a corner, though. Yeah. Oh, no, we're trapped. <laughs> oh, there's a portal. There's a portal. <laughs> to be fair, though, the scene that... The scene, that, um, the scene before that, when they're in the warehouse, and you get the policemen, and you get the bulldozers, and you get the helicopters... That was the most Carpenter-esque scene in the entire movie. Yeah. The idea of opposing full-faced forces. Well, I really, really well, like the, that Well, the police do really work in this film. Because, again, when they're trashing the uh, the hobo camp, that's... Yeah, yeah, that that works really well. And, again, they've all got the visors down, and you can't see the faces. And it's just, you know, when they're beating up the blind priest as well. And yeah. it is just faceless oppression. Which, interestingly, he replicates, I think, in Prince of darkness i want to say where they walk in and out past one of the lead characters walks past an alleyway and sees two policemen beating up a hobo okay but they turn around and one of them's a minion of this force of darkness oh. you just catch a glimpse of the face and then they go back to hitting them again okay that's, a bit that's pretty cool of 
I it's, think yeah. the, the, the 80s aesthetic part of it reminded me of V. Now, did V come before this? Yeah, I think V was 80, 81. Possibly. Oh, wow, so a lot before. So I remember V being on Sky. We didn't have Sky until 89. No, but they, they replayed it. Yeah. Um, because it was originally V. I'm sure like V was between 80 and 85. I want to say 80, 81. I'll just judge him on that one, but so I will check. Yeah, especially the but yeah, there is yes. Okay. okay, so yeah, so this is very heavily influenced, I would say, by V, and I'd say arguably this would work better as a TV show, yes, or as an extended like ten episode series. Yes, I think this could work really, really well. I'm, oh. su- I'm surprised they've never redone it. Maybe it's the the lizard people are banning a a, 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 <laughs> a new version. I really wanted to see more of the aliens. Well, you know when they they went to that dinner party, which I really liked. Um, it was quite interesting. They actually. went outside and they saw the alien transporter. Mm. I kind of wanted to see more of that. But again, that's something that they could really work with on a, a long well, stretch, say, bigger yeah. budget, and stretch that. But I really liked, yeah, the underground cities and communities, and mm. they got the rich and the elite, and then all of a sudden the hobo from the beginning turns up, and you know he's like he's he's one of them. They've enriched his bank account, and he's happy, you know. And again, the <laughs> was a sledgehammer. But it's a good idea. Yeah, and he just shows them round because it works for the plot. And the, the, I mean, there's obviously uh, elements of World War Two as well. Mm. So kind of Nazi, yeah, co-conspirators, and you know, absolutely that that element. If you kind of want to look quite darkly at it, mm. but again, preternatural antagonists who have got a slight motivation, but we don't actually know what. I mean, in V, we knew that they want basically wanted to eat us. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> they want. They wanted to take the resources of the planet. Yeah. And the but they lived. Not really clear what the motivation no. is apart from conquering. And where did, where does the they live come from? I know it was it was it was scrawled on the side of the um the wall at the beginning. God, I want to say Saturn. I'm probably talking out my ass. No, what is they live on the Titan? What's that? What's the source for that? Oh, the aliens. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they live. They do. I think it, they were <laughs> going to call it something else. What's the short story called? Is it Wednesday or something? Is there a space? Yeah, something like that. I think they said it in the opening credits. It's a great podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Research podcasting. <laughs> it's the way of the future. Talk to me about Meg Forster. Why? Um... Well, she's in it. Uh, she's in the film. Um, I know yeah. she had the balls to, to bash him over the head with a bottle. She yeah. Was, she wasn't just a kind of happy-go-lucky hostage. No, and I have to say, the way that they killed off Keith David, right at the end, spoilers, uh, right at the end, where it's almost done off-camera, just they're, they're about to storm the, at the top of the TV station, destroy the satellite, and Keith David's about to follow Roger Rodder Piper up, and he gets shot. Just done. That, all of a sudden, that's it. Then we cut to Rowdy Roddy Piper on the on the roof. I thought that was very well done, and um, I think uh, she's the only woman that Rowdy Roddy Piper kills in this film. Yeah, her betrayal was yeah. kind of out of the blue. Again, yeah, it suited the plot Lots. of the film. She yeah. she was in there to, I mean, in a way to get them into the TV studio. The idea that she worked for the TV show was it was curious. very fortuitous it though. Was, yeah, yes. the person happens to grab out of TV yeah. Again, that's something that they probably could expand on. But again, I think the opening 40 minutes of the film is so drawn out that you kind of have to to rush these things through. All of a sudden, you know, Keith David's happy to join the revolution and they just happen to come across the people in the church with the weapons. 
then she happens to turn up and happens to be capable of getting him into the TV studio and then they happen to get get guided round the TV studio so they know where to go and then, you know, it's all very, very fortuitous. Did um, did you think it was a bit of a cop-out with the consequences? Yes. Yeah. I, think I really like the sunglasses. I know, that, I know they were just like a sort of comic book gimmick, but I really like that. I, really I, know, I think that's the only time, because when they wear the glasses, they see the aliens in black and white. When they put the contact yeah. lens in, they see them in colour. Uh, yeah, there was a really nice montage at the end of it on the TV where you see the aliens from both. We, we need to talk about the last shot of the film. Okay, does, it, does it work for you? Remind me what the very last shot I'm talking, what's wrong, baby? Where she's having sex with the alien. <laughs> There's a woman having sex, and ah, she looks down, yes. and it's a guy who's actually an alien. <laughs> and that's it, fade to black. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, because it shows you kind of like how deeply the aliens are assimilated into our culture. It hops the panels, doesn't it? It does, it yes. Really I mean, having them as the, on the TV studios, that was that worked really well. And then the hairdressers and things yeah. like this. And I'm not sure the bar. it was Crazy New World Order guy. I don't know about your copy, but was the bloke, um, was the woman digitally sorted? No, no, no. She was, uh, yeah, oh, well, she was there. Crazy World Order guy obviously yeah. doesn't much care for sex. But, right. Um, <laughs> maybe, that's, for the message. maybe that's the problem. He needs to get out a bit more. It's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to talk about the stylization of the aliens, I think, as well. Because I know Carpenter, when he when it came to what should the aliens look like, he wanted to make them look like it was they, they were people, but inside out. Yes. So, and I think... Well, they look like x-rays, don't they? They do, yeah. It, it is like, if you if you... I can't remember the film, but there's a, I think it might have been the Twilight Zone when a certain smog hits you and it turns you inside out, and it's it's almost like like that. Okay. Yeah. The Midnight Garden. That could be. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I know when uh, Ms. Wood, obviously of the podcast as well, saw that she thought, "Oh my God, that's hideous." What did she, uh, just because she's not here, so you'll you'll have to be her. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did she make of it? Uh, she quite liked it. Again, it's a film I've always been very fond of because again I watched it as a kid and loved it. Didn't stand it, but I loved it. And um, but yeah, she she enjoyed it. Um, again, like me, she was thought a lot of it was very fortuitous and the the whole Rambo thing when he's charging through the TV studio, and I'm sure anyone with any military training. Would have watched the, the the people who came in two at a time and just ran into gunfire <laughs> down every alleyway. We'll be put tearing their hair out. But, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> got gunned down, motherfucker. But um, no, I think uh, that's, that's very eighties, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it's very yeah. impervious to pain. Yeah, nothing can stop yeah. him. And but uh, interestingly, he sacrifices, sacrifices his life at the end of the film for the for the good of mankind. Yeah. And again, is is that a play on this is a guy who believes in America and will die to protect it? Oh, well, he's got the hair for it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a religion I can get on board with. <laughs> the late Rowdy Piper. Oh, God bless it. Yeah. Um, just going back to two things we talked about earlier. Apparently, the graffiti is they live, we sleep. So that's where they ah, live. Clever. And the original novel was called Eight O'Clock on a Monday Morning. It's not quite uh, the catchy title, Friday, yeah. Next Friday. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not quite the Englishman that went up a hill that came down a mountain. No. <laughs> but so, so in the pantheons of Carpenter's movies, then is this one of his best? One of his worst? Yeah, again, uh, there's a there's a lot of talk about the fact that that 
what Carter does very well is he takes populist cinema and populist genres and manages to get a message across. Yes. Oh, and again, this, this is very as subtle as a sledgehammer, yeah. but yes. But but the thing is that actually the the format he's using, the style he's using, those kind of films are as subtle as a sledgehammer. We are talking the time of Commando. Oh God, yeah. yeah. Die Hard being a better one about to. I think 89. 89 Diodia. Yeah. Uh, Alien Nation was out in 88. Yeah. We should really sit down at some point and talk about Alien I've never seen Alien Nation. No, oh. it never appealed. So that we'll give Kenneth, it a go. That was Kenneth Johnson who's the same BBB, isn't it? I'm so disappointed yeah. you didn't say Kenneth Branagh then. <laughs> I think it's Kenneth James, Johnson. James Khan. Khan. Yeah, James Khan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Good stuff. So it, it, had yeah, that, it had that kind of mix of those, that, that glut of alien films post ET, which was about aliens in society. Mm. Plus the macho. <laughs> Posturing. Yes, yeah. well, yeah. And there's a, there's a lot that's very much a reflection of the big government of China. Oh, great. Which is the whole thing about the, the hero who is actually a bit of an arsehole. Yeah. And doesn't always <laughs> accomplish <laughs> what he's actually setting no. up. No. I mean, uh, you know, in Big Trouble, doesn't uh, Jack knock himself out? By he does. One of the best scenes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just about charging the yeah. battle, knocks himself out. But obviously, Ronnie Piper's slightly, he does actually manage to achieve something yes. that somebody bears. But it costs him, him his life to do so. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I'm going to go a little bit meta on you here. Because we, we have the benefit of David Icke, for us, it's like starting the movie with the glasses on. We know, we know that because it's so subtle, we know that the themes are. How the poor, how the rich corrupt the poor, mm. how the rich can't be trusted. It's deeper and more racist. Than <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it, it's quite present in the fact that it almost predicts the internet, which, which has become, it's, it's all about the, the kind of the nursing teeth, isn't it? The mm. subduing nursing teeth. Mm. Now, Carpenter thought it was TV and advertising. Actually, we can extend that further and say it's the internet. And it stops us. We're all trying. Well, not all of us, but certainly younger generations are trying to achieve something that they see on the internet, a la Kardashians or yeah, yeah. Or whatever, or you PewDiePie know. on YouTube. Yeah, kind of tweet. Yeah, it's better off you don't know. Okay. But it's all about you know matching what's being tweeted, which mm. is not a reality. No, you know it's it's all staged actually, but people aspire to that, and this this is this is kind of predicting it. Yeah. But I, I guess a, a modern update that they lived would have to involve reality television. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> no mullets. No mullets. Uh, we need to bring words. back the mullets, yeah. We need to bring them back. And that's all we have time for in this episode. Remember, you can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We're strangers to the multiplex. And until next time, please don't be a stranger. Music team.